Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 181, A Bunch of Nobodies. Last time, we covered the reign of Romanus Ahiros, the aging grandee who was chosen by Constantine VIII to prolong the Macedonian dynasty. Romanus looked like an emperor, but he had trouble being one. His six years on the throne were no disaster, but neither did they address the many problems facing Byzantium. In the end, Romanus was murdered so that a new family could step forward, a family who had ingratiated themselves with the Empress Zoe, who, as the reigning legitimate Macedonian, was still the key to power. Let's go back to Holy Week 1034, it's Thursday night, and at the Hagia Sophia, the Patriarch Alexius is taking part in the liturgy for the crucifixion. Suddenly, a member of his clergy makes urgent signals at him, and he's forced to awkwardly excuse himself. When he steps into the shadows, he finds imperial agents waiting, who say that the emperor needs him in the palace immediately. Alexius quickly changes and is hustled through the corridors of power. He probably thinks that Romanus is on his deathbed and needs a final word with his archbishop. Instead, he arrives to find Zoe and her eunuchs, explaining that Romanus died a few hours ago and it's time to crown his replacement. Now, this was a shocking request. First of all, Romanus needed to have his funeral and associated ceremonies. Second, Zoe was required by law to grieve for a full year before remarrying, and third, the man she wanted to marry and make emperor was who? Michael the money changer, the man who everyone knew she was having an affair with, but who had no public profile at all. In order to go ahead with this, Alexius had to become an accomplice to adultery, perjury, the breaking of canon law, and given everyone's shifty behaviour, quite possibly murder. To take a principled stand against all this was no easy matter. Alexius had spent much of his career in the Studite Monastery, the most famous religious house in the capital. It lay near the Golden Gate and was visited by emperors during their triumphs. In other words, he knew how business 
was done in this city. He had been appointed by Basil II himself. He had known Zoe since she was young. He owed his position to the Macedonian dynasty, and he knew that the people loved them. So, since he was committing a series of grievous sins, why not add one more? Alexius accepted a huge bribe to go ahead with both the requested ceremonies. Fifty pounds of gold for his personal use and another fifty for his clergy. The patriarch stepped forward and married the fifty-plus-year-old Zoe to the mid-twenties Michael. And then he sent word to the city's notables to gather for an important event. This was, of course, the coronation of the unknown money-changer and his transformation into Emperor Michael IV. Michael was so unknown that he has no last name, and we don't know his date of birth. We're told that he was young and handsome, and had begun his career as a money-changer, so he could be anywhere from 24 to 30. Historians tend to assume younger. What we do know is that he was from a large family, who worked in the money trade, and hailed from Paphlagonia. Paphlagonia was a place with a certain reputation at the capital. It was situated on the north coast of Anatolia, and so was well-placed to supply Constantinople with many of the essentials of life, one of which, as far as the court was concerned, were eunuchs. It was illegal and certainly frowned upon to castrate your own children in the hope of getting them a government job, but Paphlagonians were known to partake in this particular gamble, and Michael's family were a classic example of it. His three older brothers, John, Constantine, and George, were all eunuchs who'd found work on the Bosphorus. Presumably the family had done well enough from this that Michael himself and his younger brother, Nikitas, were allowed to remain intact. The boys also had a sister, Maria, whose husband Stephen and their two sons will become part of the picture. As money changes, the family had raised its sons to be smart and efficient. Michael would prove to be a competent administrator, and John had already risen high in the imperial administration. I introduced him briefly last time. He is commonly referred to as John the Orphanotrophos, meaning director of an orphanage, but by this point he was a senior financial minister who'd served Basil, Constantine and Romanus in succession. We're told that it was John who masterminded the affair between Michael and Zoe. Psellos presents their liaison in scenes straight from a sitcom. He says that Zoe was not fond of John, but once she saw Michael, she would regularly find an excuse to chat to the eunuch. She would bring up some flimsy pretense, then awkwardly steer the conversation round to Michael. Then, once the affair had begun, she would dress him up in Romanus's regalia and seat him on the throne next to her, a role-play she would determine should become reality. I'm troubled by this portrayal of Zoe as so hopelessly naive, but this prose is one of the reasons that Psellos is so easy to read. He presents human behaviour in a way that is instantly familiar to us. I also lack any evidence to counter this portrayal, and 
Zoe clearly loved Michael and wanted him to become emperor. Why else go to the extraordinary lengths she did to ensure his succession? As I mentioned last episode, the timing of this coup was key. When the great and the good assembled on the Friday of Holy Week, they may also have suspected that Romanus was dead. He had not looked well earlier in the week, but they were staggered to be informed that not only was this true, but that his replacement was awaiting their acclamations immediately. This was such a surprise, and presented as a fait accompli, that the assembled notables didn't even have time to ask, who is he, before they were forced to get on their knees or kiss hands or chant their acceptance of their new sovereign. With Zoe seated contentedly next to him, no one raised an objection. This whole affair is one of the key examples which Antony Caldellus uses to argue that Byzantium was more republic than monarchy. The fact that Michael could become emperor showed that no one thing gave you a right to the throne. You didn't need to be famous, virtuous, well-bred, pious, or have anything of note on your CV. You just had to have the backing of the other elements of the political sphere. The timing of the coup was also ideal for the Byzantine system of government to provide the legitimacy that Michael lacked. The people and the elites were already gathered to pay their respects to the emperor. They were already there to take part in ceremonies and receive honours. Michael could step into Romanus's shoes, and the rhythm of the week provided him with an ideal platform to be seen and accepted. Or, in the words of Professor Caldellis, the mechanisms of power could therefore legitimate a bunch of nobodies. This unknown family were thus acclaimed by the people and Senate, and all of the brothers and their associates were put on the payroll and given offices of state. With no experience of government, Michael relied heavily on John, who now assumed a prime ministerial role. Brother-in-law Stephen was made Admiral of the Fleet, and younger brother Nikitas was dispatched to Antioch to take control of the largest garrison in the empire. One man who was not present during all this, and was sure to object, was Constantine Thalassinos. You may remember that he was Constantine VIII's original choice to be his successor. He was a former general and governor of Antioch, who now lived in retirement in the Armenia Con. According to one chronicler, he wondered aloud why, when there were so many excellent men of distinguished families and noble birth, a vulgar threepence-a-day man should be proclaimed emperor. John and Michael were alert to the danger that Thalassinos presented. They had to get him to Constantinople and keep him away from the armies. So they sent him an elaborate series of gifts, including a piece of the true cross, with accompanying letters swearing that they would not harm him. Thalassinos was now a bit trapped. He could either go to the capital, where he would be very vulnerable, or he could refuse, which would almost certainly lead to his arrest anyway. He went, and initially was unharmed, but just like Romanus and Constantine before him, Michael carried out a purge as soon as he encountered 
political resistance. And he didn't have to wait long. Over in Antioch, Nikitas arrived at the gates and asked to be let in. The guards refused. The people had killed one of the imperial tax collectors and were afraid of reprisals if they let him in. Nikitas swore oaths of amnesty and was given entry. But as soon as he'd occupied the city, he broke his word and began executing and imprisoning the ringleaders. Whether this was true or not, he also sent word that there was a pro-Thalassinos camp in the city. On hearing this, Thalassinos was imprisoned along with various members of his family. Other nobles complained about all this oath-breaking and were arrested or lost their property in response. This had been the standard reaction of every regime since Basil's death. Their insecurity meant they had to lash out at any pushback from the elites, lest it snowball into rebellion. Michael was a weak political figure. His legitimacy rested entirely on Zoe, and John sensed that the regime was going to face a series of conspiracies unless they did something to provide stability. It's worth mentioning that Michael was an epileptic, and rumours of ill health were also likely to provoke ambitious men to action. So John persuaded Michael to name a successor. That way it would be much harder for a rival to target the emperor for slander or assassination, because another Paphlagonian would be waiting in the wings to replace him. The man they chose was also called Michael. He was their nephew, the son of Stephen and Maria. And he will be our next emperor, Michael V. In order to provide him with some legitimacy, Zoe was persuaded to adopt him in an official ceremony. However, he wasn't allowed to play a part in imperial administration during his uncle's reign, so his story will wait for a future episode. We're also told that John tried to have Alexius the Patriarch deposed so that he could fill that office, another attempt to shore up the power of the new regime. Apparently, though, the tactics used to get Alexius out would have meant invalidating all his previous decisions, including the crowning of Michael, so that plan had to be dropped. Despite their unscrupulous rise to power, Pselos has high praise for Michael and John. Though he lacked education or experience, Michael turned out to be a competent emperor. He had common sense, he took the job seriously, and he didn't take on any vainglorious projects. While John was an excellent administrator, keeping his eagle eye on imperial finances. The Orphanotrophos had a fearsome reputation, but was not known for being cruel or vindictive. According to Pselos, though, two problems emerged immediately within the palace. One was Zoe, and the other was Michael's epilepsy. John and Zoe had never been close, and the eunuch quickly identified her as the weak link in the chain. And you can see his point. Given her position as the real source of legitimacy, she would be approached by any potential plotters. And since she'd agreed to murder her husband and break with all decency for her lover, 
who knows what she would do if Michael displeased her. It was a logic that Michael could not help but agree with. Sadly, the Emperor decided after about a year to stop seeing her and confine her to the women's quarters of the palace. I say, sadly, that's how Selos casts his mood. We really have no idea what uh, their relationship was like. Selos believes that Michael was never in love with Zoe. But he also says Michael felt very guilty, both about the murder and about betraying Zoe and keeping her out of sight for most of his reign. Pselos was well connected, so this may all be true, but he's also portraying Michael in a certain way, so it's very hard to be sure. In response to her confinement, Zoe made one attempt to poison John, who she doubtless blamed for this marital rift. But this action only confirmed in Michael's eyes the wisdom of his brother's advice. Imperial guards were posted around Zoe's apartments, and no one could go in or out without their say-so. Meanwhile, Michael's health began to deteriorate. He'd long suffered from epileptic fits, but they were manageable. Now, in Imperial office, they seemed to appear more frequently. This was a real problem. An emperor was meant to be physically unblemished, and this embarrassing loss of control could delegitimize him in people's eyes. Or indeed lead to serious injury, as it nearly did when he fell from his horse on one occasion. The ingenious solution was for curtains to be fitted to a special throne from which he would conduct most of his business. When he felt the symptoms coming on, he would quickly alert the official standing either side of him who would draw the curtains and usher any supplicants away. As time passed, Michael also developed dropsy, or edema as it's known, a build-up of fluid in the body which can lead to painful swelling in the limbs. Between these two conditions, Michael cut a much reduced figure from the handsome youth who'd greeted the crowds on his accession. According to the chroniclers, Michael consulted many holy men seeking cures for his afflictions. He offered generous donatives to priests who would pray for him, and lavished money on hospices and nunneries at the capital, all in the hope of gaining forgiveness for his sins and relief from his ailments, so we're told. Modern historians point out that these could also be attempts to buy popularity. Michael did not build a church of his own to be his future mausoleum, but he did refurbish one of Justinian's foundations for this purpose. Fortunately for Michael, he could rely on John to carry the lion's share of the administrative duties, and there was plenty to be getting on with, much of what the Paphlagonians had to deal with was maintaining Basil II's extended borders. As I explored during our end-of-the-century episodes, what Basil had created were complex zones where Constantinople's influence was dominant, but where actual day-to-day -day control was in the hands of local people. These zones had to be monitored and controlled with both strength and sensitivity. I've decided to split up the various theatres of conflict rather than maintain a strict chronology over the course of this seven-year period. We're going to deal with Sicily for the remainder of today's episode and deal with the rest of the Empire next week.
As we'll discuss then, the Romans were able to secure a peace deal with the Fatimids, which allowed them to focus their energies once again on Sicily. As you may remember, just before his death, Basil II had gathered a large fleet ready to assault the island, plans which had to be postponed when he passed away. Sicily was still seen as part of Byzantium. Though there was a large Muslim presence on the island, the majority were still Greek-speaking Christians. It wasn't vital to imperial interests to reclaim it, but whenever the Arabs attacked Byzantine possessions in the Adriatic, it was a reminder that if the island could be brought back into the fold, then imperial security and prosperity would surely increase. The Sicilian Arabs were often divided into factions, with emirs seeking independence from their overlords back in Africa. What united them was the thought of a Byzantine attack. In response to Basil II's military build-up, the Saracens had launched several raids on Roman territory, which I've mentioned in passing during the past few episodes. Michael's first summer in office saw another major campaign which raided the west coast of Greece. The next year, these marauders were caught and wiped out by the Kivirioton fleet, who impaled thousands of captives along the coast. Michael and John opened negotiations with the Emir of Sicily to secure a peace deal, but events opened up the opportunity for a full invasion. As part of the deal the brothers brokered, the Emir accepted a Byzantine court title and salary, suggesting that he was becoming a Roman client like so many other Armenian, Syrian and Serbian rulers on the borders. This prompted the Emir's enemies in Africa to launch an attack on the island themselves in 1035 to bring it back under their firm control. To defend his position, the Emir asked for Byzantine help. Forces from Italy duly crossed the straits, but the Emir was killed in the fighting and the Byzantine troops withdrew. The Paphlagonians decided to take advantage of the chaos by sending a full invasion fleet. Success would provide them with all the legitimacy they needed to establish their new dynasty. The admiral in charge of the expedition was Stephen, Michael and John's brother-in-law. But he was a political appointment, not an experienced commander. To do the actual fighting, the brothers turned to the empire's star general, the man-mountain George Maniakis. The fleet sailed in 1038 with a large army made up of units from across the Byzantine world. Regular and tagmatic troops from both Anatolia and the Balkans mingled with Norman mercenaries from Italy and a Varangian detachment, including the future King of Norway, Harald Hardrada. The invasion got off to a good start, landing successfully and taking Messina. The Arabs gathered their forces and the two sides met at Rometa, a key fortress which guarded the road along the north coast. The fighting was heavy, with a local river said to have overflowed with blood. Maniakis carried the day, and the Arabs were routed. This victory opened the island up to conquest, and the Byzantine commander focused on the eastern side of the island, leading his men around and installing garrisons in various citadels. 
Next, the Byzantines made their way towards Syracuse, which they invested in spring 1040. If they captured the city, then their position would be hugely strengthened, as they would essentially control the whole of the east coast. The Arab emir had to try and stop them, and battle was joined again at Troina, near Mount Etna. Maniakes was fairly confident of victory, and left Stephen to guard the coast and prevent any escape for the emir's men. Sure enough, the Byzantines crushed the Arabs, and the emir fled for the sea. Unfortunately, he made it to his ship and got away, which meant he could sail straight for Africa to collect reinforcements, exactly what Maniakes had tried to prevent. The furious general yelled at Stephen in front of his men and, so we're told, hit him with his whip. The terrified and out of his depth Stephen sent word back to Michael and John accusing Maniakes of treason. They concurred and ordered the general to be arrested and hauled back in chains to Constantinople. Maniakes was replaced by a palace eunuch, and predictably things began to fall apart. The Norman mercenaries complained about not getting their fair share of the spoils and departed for Italy, where they began to destabilise the Byzantine position in Bari. Meanwhile, the Arabs brought fresh troops in and began to eliminate the Byzantine garrisons one by one. This was Basil II's poisoned legacy at work. He had created a winning military machine, but he'd failed to provide for its future leadership. Here, the army comfortably outclassed a rival power, but that success made it a threat to the insecure regime in the capital. The last thing they wanted was for Maniakis to become a superstar. It was easy to imagine that, like Nicephorus Phocas before him, he might parade in triumph down the messy, outshining Michael, and making the crowds wonder, hey, why don't we replace that nobody with this somebody? Michael and John felt they had to cut him down and replace him with a pliable non-military figure. But when their chosen eunuch arrived in Sicily, the Normans and other mercenaries took one look at him and thought, he's not going to lead us to victory. It might sound simplistic, but we've seen time and again that the individual commander of an army made a massive difference in the pre-modern world. Soldiers risked their lives for a man they knew personally a man who could look them in the eye and promise to pay them what they'd asked or honour their terms of service, a man who could prove he knew what he was doing, who wouldn't lead you into a trap or sacrifice you to save himself. Maniakes was not a people person, but you had no doubt that he would die in the mud with you rather than run for his tent. Back during Belisarius's invasion of Italy, we saw how quickly orders get ignored when an army is divided up across a landscape and unable to communicate quickly. It takes a dedicated commander with authority, money and luck to pull off this kind of invasion. With Maniakis gone, the operation was bound to collapse, just as the first two invasions of Crete had done. The Byzantines might have been able to cling on to what they had taken, but events elsewhere diverted their attention. 
First the Normans stirred up trouble in Italy, requiring troops to be sent there, and then a full-blown Bulgarian uprising exploded in the summer of 1040, something we will cover in detail next week. Though the Byzantines would continue to hold Messina for another couple of years, this was the last time they would be seriously involved in Sicily. Whether or not a reconquest would have been a great boon to the empire, the Romans clearly could have taken the island, but now they never would. Next time, we will cover the rest of the empire's borders, including big problems in the Balkans, as the Serbs, Bulgarians and Pechenegs run wild. But for those of you who backed the Kickstarter, you don't need to wait a week to get some more History of Byzantium content. The first videos from Istanbul have been completed and await your viewing pleasure. Check your emails for the links or drop me a line if you can't find them.